Welcome back. This is a case-based um, exercise where I'll present a question followed by a representative case and then some options that you will vote on, and then we'll have the panelists weigh in. The, the goal of this is to um, is severalfold. The questions are coming from common questions that I've received in the last year since our last meeting. And I also called it for some of the things I presented last year. I, I'm not presenting this year, so I've tried to keep it fresh for those of you who are, are the repeat offenders at the meeting. Um, but they are common things that come up, and I think we've already touched on a number of the topics. Um, the panel, who I'm going to have introduce themselves in just a second, are a representative from clinics all throughout the country. Um, their role is to just kind of reflect on how folks in their practice are managing XYZ situations or even to raise questions that, you know, gee, I don't understand this, what this is all about. Um, the goal is to make it quick and snappy and not have long responses. Um, the you know, 30 seconds or so, state your opinion, we'll keep it moving. Uh, so we'll go ahead and have folks, uh, Raj, you've already met, um, Michelle. Good morning. My name is Michelle Iandiorio, and I'm the clinical director of the South Central ATC, where we're located now. So that uh, comprises New Mexico, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana. Uh, so please stop by and see the table. I'm also a medical director of a Wine White-based clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Great. Hey there, I'm Dr. Dan Moore. I know it says Jesse, but I go by Dan, Dan Moore. And I'm from Arkansas. I'm also with the South Central ATC also. Um, I work for our care. We are a federally qualified health center in Arkansas, uh, serving most of the state of Arkansas, especially the rural areas. Good morning. I'm Paula Seal. I'm with Louisiana State University in New Orleans. I work here with uh, the HIV outpatient clinic. Um, I also work at the AETC for LSU. Hi, I'm Phil Bolduck, and I'm the PI of New England AIDS Education Training Center. I'm also an associate professor of family medicine at University of Massachusetts. And finally, I run a, um, a Ryan White program at uh, Family Health Center Worcester and FQHC, and we also host an HIV and viral hepatitis fellowship there. And uh, Steve Johnson, I oversee the clinical program at the University of Colorado. And the co-chair for the meeting. Um, so these are my disclosures. Our institutions receiving uh, uh, grant support from Gilead and Vive. So we're going to talk about starting therapy, elite controller treatment, uh, TDF versus TAF, uh, low-level viremia, what do you do with it, what do you do with end-stage renal disease, and have a slow CD4 counter response to ART, what do you, how do you manage it, and there's a few other things. So this is how I'm organizing it so that you know what sport we're playing before we get to the question. You don't have to sit there and figure out what we're delving into. Um, and so this one is a starting about talking about starting therapy in most everybody, but what about immediately at the time of diagnosis, the so-called rapid start? So we've got a 30-year-old guy diagnosed four hours ago in the ER, asymptomatic, no viral load, CD4 resistance data, HLA stuff. Uh, other labs are normal. White count is 3,800, and the lymphocyte count is 20%. No significant mass medical history, not on any other medicines. Okay to start therapy if you think he should. So. Would you start him on therapy right now in the ER within one to two days, within the next two weeks, two to four weeks, some other option? Go ahead and vote. Right 
We're going to be doing show tunes, so feel free to sing along or dance or whatever you want to do. Okay, let's see what we got. All right, so 40% would start right away. Um, how are you guys doing that in your respective locations? Let's uh, just hear from our guests. Yeah. I'll go first. Good. You know, Dan. as far as you know, at, in our system, you know, we'd like to start right off the bat, but a lot of our patients, you know, don't have the funding to pay for those those medicines, so they have to come through the process of getting enrolled in the Ryan White programs. We have to send those forms off to our state Department of Health. They have to approve the patient. It may be a two to three week process. Mm -hmm. So in Arkansas, we are trying to work with the health department on shortening that shortening the time down. Um, so that we can get it within maybe at least 48 hours. Um, ideally, we'd like to have it so that they can get it within you know, one day. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, Michelle, Paula, or Phil, any of y'all starting in the ER? Nope. How not are you managing that, not Paula? Not immediately in the yeah. ER. We do have a patient navigator who will go over for a warm handoff who will introduce themselves, and then they will walk the patient over to clinic. And then we do have same-day appointments right. to start. Uh, Steve, any comment? Yeah, I think uh, I think most commonly we've done uh, answer B within one or two days. It just is helpful to kind of get somebody in the clinic where we can get our patient support team involved and make sure that the education is there. I, I, I don't think there's a wrong answer here, but but I like the first three. Yeah, it, it, it's really about logistics, isn't it? Um, yesterday at the conference, somebody said, well, "Was there a biologic reason to start right away?" If it's acute primary infection, yes. That's worth pulling out the stops to get them on therapy immediately because every hour theoretically could matter. But other than that, and other than a person on, in the ICU with pneumocystis where you want to start kind of quickly, um, the concept is to get them treated soon, very soon. But logistically, it's really hard for all the, some of the reasons you've already heard to get somebody in the ER started when you don't have the infrastructure supporting you, and our ER is, uh, is a madhouse, and uh, you can barely find the patient, much less uh, treatment. Yeah, Raj. I mean, when I first started doing this, I used to have people, you know, practice taking ARVs with uh, Tic Tacs. That, you know, that I think the point, as you said, is to not do that anymore and to get yep. them on therapy as soon as the logistics can be worked out and, and don't really kind of prolong things. And so. the data, yeah, Phil. And I just want to add that it should be one of those first two choices and definitely not the third. The longer a patient goes between the time of diagnosis to when they start medicines, the longer they realize that they've gotten over the shock of the initial diagnosis and actually I feel all right. And yeah. I, I, maybe I don't need to take medicines and other things start to creep in. And so we need to convey a, a sense of urgency on yep. how important it is to treat and to treat right away. And if we don't act that way, they start to... Yeah, and I think also stigma starts to play in, and if they have more time to be at home and think about it, they go, I don't really want to go to that clinic, I'll be, you know, I'll be outed, and all kinds of things. And when the urgency disappears, the likelihood of not showing. And another thing they've discovered in Africa, where there's long distances between where a patient lives, is that they have to trek all the way in for a diagnosis, go home, and then trek back for treatment. They just kind of say, no way. So this is where a lot of the data originally went from. So this is about initial therapy for this individual. Let's say you don't have any clinical data beyond what I told you. Um, which of the following regimens do you consider to be decent choices for initial therapy in that setting? That is rapid initiation before data 
like CD4 count viral load resistance test B5701 before anything's back. I'll let you look at it and go ahead and vote. Dina Menzel is now promoting Rapid Start because she's going to the wizard to make it happen. Okay, so comments. Would most? I'm seeing affirmative nodding. That's good. Michelle, what do you think? I think yes. <laughs> I agree. For everything? Yeah, so uh, that would be my choice as well, tenofovira, emtricitabine, and bictegravir, single tablet regimen. It does really well. I think uh, TAF-FTC with uh, dalutegravir also would, would be my second choice as well. If there was some compelling reason to use a boosted PI, um, if I was very concerned about adherence issues or something like that, I think that would be another option. Uh, really, what medications are available, um, what can I get for the patient as soon as possible is really key. I think a two-drug regimen would not be my preference. Uh, not knowing more about this particular patient if I'm concerned about adherence. Okay, Raj? Yeah, no, I think there are plenty of good answers, and I would agree with what most of you voted for. The ones I wouldn't do are um, I wouldn't do the Abacavir regimen because I really need that B57 back, and nowhere I know of will do that, you know, the same day. I, I wouldn't probably do the Ropivirine regimen. No one voted for that because Ropivirine is, you know, there's more um, NNRTI transmitted resistance um, than there are to other classes. And I agree with Michelle, I wouldn't do the um, Dalgetegra 3TC yet because that regimen that we mentioned briefly and that I'm, might be mentioned again was studied in people where you knew they didn't have transmitted drug resistance, you didn't, they didn't have hepatitis B, and their viral load was always less than 500,000, and we don't know any of those three things for him. So, Steve, for you that were person. leaning forward. Yeah, just to summarize, and we talked about this last night, the three things that you typically don't have are resistance data. Uh, hepatitis B data, although that comes back pretty quickly now, and then uh, HLA testing. So you just uh, avoiding NNRTI-based regimens and two-drug regimens based on resistance concerns. So one of the questions I promised I would get back to, this is the moment, uh, when they said, well, what about Dalutegravir 3TC, uh, the company that makes those product, that product as a single tablet, are pushing it as a consideration for this setting. So. What, what do you think about using Dalutegravir 3TC? And then their, their thesis is that once the data come back, you can adjust, uh, but that um, M184V mutations are relatively uncommon uh, as far as transmission, maybe up to 10%, so you got a 90% chance of not having it as far as hepatitis B. 3TC is active. You're not going to be going long enough as monotherapy to get resistance from to 3TC. Steve? Well, I think one set of data that's really good is the switch data with uh, Dahlia Tegaber 3TC, the Tango study. So I think you could always start out with something, and then if you were, switch over to if you were enamored with that regimen, you could make a switch. Yeah. I think that's fair. You made a great point about what the limitations are. Yeah, Raj. I, I had heard that they're studying Dahlia Tegaber 3TC for same day start, but that data is still That's right. in the process of being accumulated. So I, too, would um, shy away for it for the reasons that have already been said um, right now. Right. So let's uh, now say you didn't start in the ER. You now have some data that have come back. It's a newly diagnosed patient. They're back within, let's say, a week, and you're seeing them. Um, this is a story. 
Um, it's a 48-year-old guy. Uh, viral load comes back at 28,000. CD4 counts 650. He's B5701 positive. He's got wild-type virus, uh, normal renal function, okay to start therapy. So similar choices. It's been modified a little bit. I'll let you look through it, and we'll go ahead and start voting. lot of variety here. <laughs> Looks like a giant middle finger to me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure what we're saying. Um, comments, uh, Phil, what would you do in this setting? <laughs> Same thing. I agree. I think it's, it's hard to justify anything else at this point. So you have all these data back. Um, looks like nobody bit on Abacavir, so people were paying attention. That was the point of that. Why do you get the test if you're not going to act on it? Uh, Dan, what do you think? I mean, I agree on Bictegravir uh, 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 regimen, which you have to go with also. You definitely would not want to use Abacavir. Yeah. What about uh, TAF, FTC, Dolutegravir? Anybody use that? Yeah? Michelle, you're kind of shrugging. Sure. If there was some reason I couldn't use the single tablet regimen, maybe someone's formula or something. Okay. We're going to get to some. Let's bookmark. Let's bookmark uh, the TAF with a uh, dolutegravir or bictegravir regimen for a, a slot or two in the future. Um, and any other comments, uh, Steve? Well, I just ask a question to the panel now that uh, we have dolutegravir 3TC. Do we really need to mess with Abacavir as a drug given uh, this, this patient obviously is uh, uh, hypersensitive, but there's this cardiovascular issue as well. Is Should we be doing starts with Abacavir uh, anymore? I don't ever. In fact, I think this is, I would probably also use Bictegravir TAF FTC, but this is the perfect person for Dolutegravir 3TC. Yeah, I mean, you've got a high CD4 count. Yep. You've, um, you've got a person who's got a viral load that isn't super high. It's certainly not even close to 500,000. I, I can't remember if the Hep B is back, but probably Hep B yeah. negative. Hep B but, was um, negative. So, yeah, I, I would, I think because we have much more experience with the one that everyone's voting for, that's what it's we actually uh, the next go to. question, uh, <laughs> which is why it wasn't on this slide. But... Um, Anybody enamored by tenofovir TDF 3TC low dose of Ovarins? The cost of that generically is going to be about one third to 25 percent of the cost. Nobody's nobody excited about it. The reason that it's out, I'm just playing devil's advocate. The reason it's out there at the 400 milligrams is because when that drug was developed in the late 90s. They couldn't decide on the right dose, and they figured, well, we're going to go high as opposed to go low. It's like maybe the Michelle Obama approach. And, um, and now we're seeing that going low actually works okay. And, uh, and the lower dose of Fovrens has fewer uh, adverse events and uh, generally works about 80% of the time 
and if we're thinking about it from a public health perspective, I think we can bookmark this conversation for Tim Horn later in the meeting. We thought about this in a lot of ways. I'm d I don't know if we need to address it now. It's a good question for Tim Horn to talk to us about. Um, let's go to the next slide. Great. So, to the point Raj was making, would you use Dalutegavir 3TC in that exact setting, viral loads, whatever it was, 28,000, CD4 count 650, um, no resistance, go ahead and vote. Okay, so panelists, somebody wants to take the pro or the con or Paula? I just was commenting on the side that I think I would not, and I, maybe just because I don't have enough experience with it, I haven't seen enough experience with it in real life practice, um, retention and care, having the patient return. I don't think we knew his hepatitis status was negative. It was negative. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think for me, I don't see a negative in starting someone on three drug therapy with good renal function now that we have safer medications. At least assess how quickly that person will return to care and go from there. And then That's we can de-escalate, I mean, or adjust as What if needed. I throw cost in as a differentiator, that it's 38000 a year for Bictegravir and 20,000 a year for Dalutegravir 3TC. But do we really know how much things really cost? I would follow up with that. But I mean, I learned from the master. <laughs> um, but then, then you bring up a very valid point. Okay. And I, I, then I don't have much ground to stand on, I think, in that regard. Okay. Other thoughts? Again, Anybody I'll, will take the pro. Part, no, uh, I'll still be on the no side. As for, for now, at least, until we know more about it and get more comfortable, just have it. Just not made that jump yet. Okay. Raj, you, you presented on this, so you know a something about it. Yeah. How are you feeling about it? I mean, I think, you know, we spent our entire careers with three drug therapy, most of us, and so that's what we know, and we know it works. Um, I, I think over time I will move um, to Dolly Takeover 3TC as I and others get more experience of it, with it in the real world. Um, I think we'll probably dip our toe into it by getting them suppressed on three-drug therapy and then switching them to two-drug therapy. I've started doing that in all my, many of my patients who are on a back of your 3TC for reasons, say, they had uh, TDF-related toxicities. I've started switching them to Dalutegravir 3TC based on a study called Tango that, that Steve just mentioned. Um, so, no, I, I do think this particular patient fits the Gemini criteria exactly, and I think it would be very reasonable to start Dalutegravir 3TC. I think it's just kind of our own Yep. Provider psychology almost. Exactly. Well, so we talked about this for the half of you or so who were here yesterday, but the notion is when we give antiretroviral therapy, biologically, all we're doing is protecting an uninfected cell from becoming infected. And we learned with the early drugs like nevirapine that using it by itself, you got resistance in just a few days. And so we started adding more drugs and found that three was kind of a sweep spot, but that was with the drugs in the pre integrase inhibitor era. And the integrase inhibitors in particular are so much more potent and active on a nanomolar level that it, it can't use it alone. We tried that, it didn't work so well. I mean, it worked, but there was some resistance and then you're really hosed if you get resistance to those. So adding one more drug to it seems to be a sweet spot for the scenarios that you mentioned. So I think 
as long as we're thinking biologically, um, we can maybe start breaking through some of the dogma about three drugs um, over time. And you mentioned a number of other two drugs therapies. My final comment is that I learned in, in residency that there's a thin line difference between what's dogma and what's dogmanure. So that's kind of important to keep in mind. Steve, kind of, yeah. No, okay, Phil. The other, the other thing to remember is that it, we always thought it was the addition of a third drug that suddenly made antiretroviral therapy work, but really we also, you could think of it as adding a second class, because all we had up until that point were nukes and nukes. That's right. Two nukes didn't quite do it, even three nukes didn't quite do it, but yep. we thought of it as adding a third drug. It was really adding a second class, yep. and then we were, I agree, I've been stuck on that three drug mantra forever too, and now that the drugs are so less toxic, we're, we're less inclined to want to move away from it, because it's so easy to take a single tablet regimen that uh, is well tolerated and doesn't have side effects, but um, I think that, like the rest of the panelists, as we see more people succeed with it in the real world, uh, not yeah. on a clinical trial, we'll feel more comfortable with And that. again, the places to be leery are people that are hep B surface antigen positive, patients who have a 184V at baseline, and those with uh, CD4 counts less than 200 from the studies, and we've already heard about this. So. Would you use TAF or TDF with an NS? And I only gave you TAF for the most part so far. So what about the use of TDF in today's world? Go ahead and vote. Back to Wicked. So is TDF Wicked? That's what we want to know. Is it evil? Let's see what folks say. Whoops, I didn't get a, oops, let's go back. Yeah, so most people, 19% of people feel okay with TDF and the world has turned to TAF. All right, let's look at some data. Now, if I asked you, if I did a meta-analysis of 22 studies with 15,000 patients who got TDF or TAF in a randomized trial, show of hands, how many of you think that bone mineral density would be would favor TAF. Okay, how many of you would just say renal tubular toxicity would favor TAF? Okay, let's look at some data. So this is a study that came out of Andrew uh, Andrew Hill and his group um, that was initially in a, in a I have the references for you that was originally presented uh, and in a paper in 2018 and updated last year, or this year at, at the European meeting. And you can't see much of a difference between them in terms of TDF-TAF or TAF, to, regardless of what the booster drug is or the anchor drug. And so as far as activity, boosting seemed to favor TAF a little bit, but it wasn't in the unboosted regimens less, uh, effect, less of an impact. As far as AEs, not a whole lot of difference. You have to digest this a little bit, but the TAF are the sort of um, rusted colors and the uh, TDF is blue, or shades of blue. And you can see that there's not really any difference as far as AEs. But what's really striking is when you go to a, um, um, an analysis of renal toxicity, and this is not just a bump in creatinine because that clearly favors TAF over TDF is about a 0.1 milligram per deciliter. So there is a difference there, but as far as actual renal toxicity, tubular toxicity, there is no difference between them out of 15,000 patients or 14,800. 
And if you look also at the bone mineral densities and fractures both, there's no difference. So I think what we've got is um, there is a, a difference. There's no question that if you look just at creatinines, but we tend to have blocked out our entire experience with TDF, which was in 2004 was a blockbuster drug because it, it was a game changer. Suddenly it became evil or wicked. And I think we just should pull back and say, you know, just take a breath and think about this a little bit more because Again, I am harping a little bit on cost because um, I think we need to get in that fight uh, ultimately because the cost of healthcare has risen dramatically and a lot of that driving cost is drug, to is drug I call it toxicity, call it cost toxicity. Now, do we translate that and, and not do what's best for our patients? No, we, we do what's best. But when there's more equivalence or when there's equipoise, I think that can come into the discussion. Dan? Yeah, we'll tell that to the lawyers because well, you, you see all these Facebook ads and other th ads saying, you know, if you've ever taken, you know, a, a TDF, then, you know, call our office. And so we have patients that are coming to me saying, I want kidney studies. And I've done studies, you know, showing that they're fine, but they want, you know, ultrasounds. They want everything done so they can get part of the lawsuit. I see. So is that how we we're going to have to practice is out of fear of lawyers? Okay. I mean, your point's well I'm not trying to... to argue the point, just looking at the data. I mean, I would have, I would have expected something different. Yeah. Yeah, the patients too. Right. So this is the reason I bring it up and you'll see it's a little bit of a sub theme for the meeting with Tim Horn coming. It's not that any of us like the fact that we have to start considering things other than the patient. I don't want to think about the lawyers, um, but I, I'm, I'm excited to think about the patient. But the question is, at some point, when we're taking care of this patient and we only have so many resources, it's the other patients who we're also considering. And it's a hard mindset to kind of get into, and it's one that's totally uncomfortable. Uh, I'm just raising it because of you are who you are. You're on the cutting edge, and you're the heavy-duty treaters in the field, and I'm just giving you a bit of a reality here that we're going to, in the next decade, I feel very confident, um, be forced in some ways to start considering cost. And maybe it's best if it's taken out of our hands, that some bureaucrat will say, nope, you can't use it here until this has failed. I find that less comfortable than me engaging in it myself, but that's a personal view. Steve? Well, I think the, the, the data are, are compelling and, and kind of suggest in retrospect that some of the differences, especially in unboosted settings, we, we may be overstating the, the differences. On the other hand, I think we are talking about therapies that are given over a very long period of time, and so I think subtle differences in, in changes in BMD and, and kidney parameters could be significant. And I think there are, are other data sets. In fact, there are data sets, for example, in PrEP patients and so on that show differences between TDF and TAF. Um, I'm sure you're going to talk about weight gain, but the other advantage of TAF is the, is the low milligram dosage, which has led to pills that are, are easier to take and, and uh, probably more tolerable, right. swallowable. So I'm, I'm deliberately taking a contrarian position because um, it, most people don't take a contrarian position, so I'm doing this just to bring it out. Um, but I think if the question is asked, um, which is better in terms of these specific items, bone toxicity 
and renal tubular toxicity, not talking about creatinine clearance, talking about those two things, there isn't a difference. There is a difference with creatinine clearance. And then the question is, over time, like you say, is that going to play out in clinically meaningful ways? But the other take-home point, Raj, I'd like you to comment, if you don't mind, is just the whole notion of the boosting versus unboosting and the interaction between TDF and boosted drug. Yeah, that, that's a, a good point. So many of these studies that were done um, used um, pharmacologically boosted either protease inhibitors or integrase inhibitors, alvitegavir, COBE. And when you have a pharmacolog when you have cystat on board or, whether, or if you have ritonavir on board, your, your tenofovir levels go up by about 40 percent, 40 to 50 percent. So some of the t um, differences are driven by that higher tenofovir level because it is true that tenofovir does affect the bone and, and kidney. It might be subclinical, but it does. So the differences between TAF and TDF are accentuated, are greater when you've got a pharmacologic booster on board. Now, most of us have largely steered away these days from pharmacologic boosters if we can. So many of you are using Bictegravir, many of you are using Dolutegravir. In those settings, uh, the TDF-TAF difference, you know, drug levels will be, will be less. You know, this is a, a big challenge, and I um, have a lot of patients on, on TAF right now. Um, I think the cost is, we're really uncomfortable factoring that in, but um, I think younger patients, um, my 50, 60-year-olds often are getting um, creatinine clearances around 60, and then I begin to get uncomfortable clinically with TDF. Right. Um, right. My 25-year-olds my have creatinine clearances that are way higher than mine, and, and right. you know, are, 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 that, that's less of an issue for them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is, this is a tough one. I don't. And, and one other point just about the difference, it also is true for TAF when you boost. If you look carefully at the TAF combined with cobicistat and the fixed dose combination, you'll notice that it's 10 milligrams, not 25. And there's a reason, because Kobe boosts TAF levels as well, and you don't need to get, but we don't have that exchange for TDF. Yeah. No. There you go. I was just recently approached at a conference by a general a physician that practices in Fort Lauderdale who says he's seeing a lot of hip fractures in people that were on PrEP, mainly with Truvada. I'm wondering if this is a back way regarding this well, same issue. I do not do PrEP because I cannot yeah. get it paid right. for. So but I'm wondering if you folks have more experience with PrEP and have seen this. Well, let's Truvada. postpone that to the PrEP conversation. But yes, um, all I can say is that out of these larger studies, fractures were seen, but they were equally seen between TAF and TDF. So I don't know if it's if what that is, um, but it, it is a concern. Other thing I'll mention, and then I'll move on, is that DEXAs are often used in these studies to look at bone mineral densities and whatnot. But DEXA was never designed for or validated or adjusted for people under the age of 45 or 50. So when you start seeing changes, it's hard to know exactly what they mean. And so that's, so you could argue, well, maybe this isn't picking up things or maybe it's subclinical. So moving on, it seems like we're seeing a lot of patients who have therapy for everyone, but what about elite controllers? So we have a person who's seven years ago diagnosed but never had a detectable virus. They did have a DNA from their cells that showed HIV, so we know they are indeed infected despite the lack of virus antibodies positive, of course. And CD4 counts 870 and has been stable. Uh, from the DNA, you get wild-type virus, um, B57's negative, 
Uh, okay to start therapy if you think so, but what do you think? Would you start therapy at this time? Yes, no, maybe. Go ahead and vote. Oh, okay. Still wicked. Okay. Most people would. How about you guys? You seeing elite controllers in practice? Are you watching? Are you treating? I think this is, continues to be a challenging question. Uh, I would vote for maybe because I would throw it back to the patient. Um, I think the goal of antiretroviral therapy is to stop the virus from replicating. What we don't know is, is the virus continuing to replicate just low, with low-level viremia that's not currently detected with the, with the viral load test. And so I would you know, discuss that with the patient. We talk about risk benefits. The antiretrovirals are really quite safe now, so this conversation is different now than it was 10 years ago. But I still am not sure if the answer really should be yes, if I should really push the patient to start therapy because there's good evidence that the patient should. So I don't know. Well, I, I think this is a group that we're never going to have, you know, a randomized clinical trial comparing our typical clinical outcomes data. Uh, in fact, the START trial did a sub-analysis of people with low HIV viral loads and really couldn't show a difference. On the other hand, uh, we do see changes in inflammatory markers in individuals who are placed on antiretroviral therapy, and there's at least one study that, uh, that, that shows a difference in hospitalizations and, and other types of events in individuals who are on therapy compared to people who are not on therapy, elite controllers. And, and get back to this other point about sending the message that, that treatment is important uh, in everyone. And so I, I think we emphasize in this setting there's kind of a variation of the elite controller, these kind of low-level viremic folks that kind of move around and mm -hmm. so on. And I think, you know, in that setting, I think it's an even stronger case. But we're offering therapy to elite controllers and promoting it. Yeah, Paula. No, I, I just would agree with the concern of um, ongoing inflammation, even if we're not seeing it um, in their viral load. And um, I guess with progression as they get older of an organ involvement or damage. And then also I think the big issue for me is um, having, making sure they know to come back because I have seen one or two patients who are under the impression that, that their viral load would never change and they didn't need to come back. And then when they did come back, they had very advanced disease. Yeah. So this is the study I showed yesterday, but the bottom line is even when people, you can see untreated as far as cellular activation and inflammation, there's a fairly high number of cells. But even on treatment for a while, uh, they don't approach negative values. So there's some degree of ongoing churning, if you will, of, of uh, the immune system against the virus that might be, might be detrimental. But I think the elite controllers that I followed, and Raj, you guys have followed a lot um, with Bruce Walker's group and others, um, I notice that over time, if they're untreated, they do start to progress as far as CD4 count decline. And, what, are you, what yeah. are you noticing? I've seen that as well. And the first indication sometimes might be their CD4 to CD8 ratio starts to go down. Yep. Um, and when I start seeing that, um, there are some evidence that those are the people who are the most inflamed and probably the most at risk of, of eventually progressing. Um, there's also some data that CRP can start to elevate in yep. some of these elite controllers. There may be a, a really unique group of quiescent elite controllers that have normal CRPs, normal CD4 to CD8, but most of them eventually will dwindle. 
And as you said, they're, they're churning, you know, their, their immune system is active all the time. And there are data suggesting that many of them have replication, you know, um, if you look at kind of genetic changes. So I tend to also uh, treat while acknowledging that we're never going to have a clinical trial that, that proves it. But um, also with the whole U equals U message, I think the issue of viral loads fluctuating, you know, if their viral load a few weeks or months or years from now is now a thousand, then there's issues around, um, um, you know, um, transmission. Joe Aaron once had a case that he uh, mentioned, this really brought it home to me of making the point that was said. He had an elite controller who stopped coming to clinic and then ended up presenting years later with pneumocystis pneumonia and actually died of PCP. Mm. And so that's kind of that message of even if you're not on therapy, you got to stay right. engaged. So. so that's a very rich discussion. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, we are hearing uh, a lean towards treatment and uh, it also breathes into question, as I said yesterday, the notion of functional cure where you convert somebody to an elite controller, but is that really victory as opposed to an absolute cure where the virus is gone? So should I change a regimen when low detectable virus is present? I got a 55-year-old diagnosed a while ago. The original viral load was almost a million and the CD4 count was 70. His current HIV RNA is 85 and it usually hovers between 40 and 90. And uh, CD4 count now is 525, done well, and been through the usual suspects of treatment in the past, but now is on dolutegravir, boosted darunavir, and 3TC. Um, no historical resistance test, but obviously doing well from a lot of perspectives. And the question is, should you change his therapy based on the viral load not being undetectable? Yes, no, or not sure. Go ahead and vote. Okay, middle finger of a different sort. Uh, this telling us no. Um, Dan. Well, first, I would like to know, you know, are they adherent or not? That would be the first question I'd have, have uh -huh. them come in, discuss, are you really taking this medicine every day, and see if there's some reason why this never Let's assume they are, because most of them are, yeah. And, and, and if, that, if that point, if they are, it, then I would definitely get a genotype to see if I would from, this, from the DNA. Yes. Uh, okay, let, let's say you do that, you're going to see a lot of uh, archived resistance to what he's been on before, but nothing that indicts the dolutegravir or the darunavir. In other words, so what, what is the cause of this low level of uremia? Every, most people see this? Yeah. And the classic story is someone who's just like this, who had initial viral load of around a million. So what might be going on? Others? Um, Steve, Raj? Well, we, uh, we presented a differential diagnosis yesterday. Uh, the, uh, certainly failure is, is possible, and you have to continue to follow these viral loads, and if they ramp up, that's a concern. Um, adherence is, is an important thing to check. Um, I think some of this is due to laboratory uh, errors that occur from time to time. And then the other thing is the uh, viral reservoir. Uh, where, you, where you have actually the breakdown of latent cells that releases virus, so it's, so it's not a failure of your therapy. It, it, is, it is difficult and it is common, relatively speaking, and this is the type of patient, Dan, your points are well taken, that you want to make sure that it's not progressing and that 
the real thing is the arc of the viral load. If it's starting to go up and it's going up to 200 or higher, then I think we can clearly say that there's uh, a problem with ongoing replication. But in the setting of uh, steadiness over years, um, this is probably virus that's being spit out from a latent reservoir that's a fairly large latent reservoir and you're just now being able just to detect this. And this is probably going on in every patient that we treat. There's a latent reservoir, but just not enough residual cells that you can detect the virus that's coming out. When that reservoir is larger, then you're gonna end up seeing this. Jeannie? Yeah, um, thanks. The, the other thing I wanted to say, it may not necessarily be adherence, but because of the dolutegravir, you really, I get very nervous when I see this because, especially in somebody who's been virologically suppressed for a long time, and you really have to, I think, explore if they're taking, you know, a multivitamin or taking something with calcium, which might affect one of those drugs. I had a patient that this happened, undetectable for years. She was going for bariatric surgery, started taking a shake. I was querying her, and it mm -hmm. was the shake that was related. The minute she took that out, it had something in it. Right. She was undetectable again. So I think it's cause for concern, yeah. especially if you have a long history of somebody who's been undetectable that you need to Right. Explore. In this case, this patient's never been undetectable, just always sort of hovering. And there were a couple of studies, I'm not going to bore with the details, but basically showed that, that the, the low-level viremia and viral blips were not really associated with much virologic failure in this setting and um, but the, for the reasons we've already talked about. Um, does integrase inhibitor, do they uh, cause a weight gain? And so this is a 47-year-old woman who's started on BIC, FTC, and TAF, and original regimen was boosted to Runavir, diagnosed four years ago. Um, the big issue, this viral load and CD4 counts are fine, but her weight went from 145 to 171. And so the question is, uh, would you continue the current therapy? Would you switch to something else? And if so, what? Go ahead and vote. Not 5,000. Not, not, that's not a weight gain. Okay, let's see what Jonathan Larson says here. Okay, see the result. Okay, the majority would keep her on what she's on, and there'd be some changing panel. You all staying with the program? Uh, is the weight gain uh, issue already taking care of itself and changing isn't going to make a difference? Paul, what do you think? Um, I don't think we know yet if the weight gain is due mm -hmm. to the integrase. Um, it could, it could, I guess some of the questions I would just talk to her about lifestyle, has she, you know, has something changed? I mean, we would have to investigate everything at this point, diet, exercise, you know, lifestyle for her, and then I think I would try to stay the course right now. If, if she had not been suppressed before, um, then I think it, would, you, it could be an issue of the amount of time that it takes for her to suppress and that her body was actively you know, dealing with the infection and that could have been a contributor. Yeah. But I think Other thoughts? Phil? 
Yeah, we agree. We don't have data on big Tegravir yet about weight gain, but we certainly do about dolutegravir in, in combination with TAF and women. And so we don't know whether it's a class effect and we'll see it in big Tegravir yet. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I would like to know our BMI to know whether, again, if, you know, moving out of catabolic state and is this return to health or has she overshot, which we're seeing. Yeah. Um, because I've had that happen with some patients uh, where they clearly overshoot the, the return to health weight gain. And, mm -hmm. I, and I've talked about changing. Right. So here, here are the data, um, and there's several different studies, but this is out of the NA Accord, and, and it looked like um, there's a tendency for more weight gain. But the thing that I've noticed is you, most of that weight gain is in the first six months, or first several months, right? And, um, and then if you block that out, once you get beyond that, there's still some increase, but there's not as much difference between the classes. So there's something it appears to be in the first year that's really at play. Um, and I'm not sure what that is exactly. Uh, other studies have, have looked in different ways at, at the different drugs and seen similar responses. Um, Dalutegravir, here it is again. Um, Advance was a study that looked at TDF versus TAF, and TAF appeared to have a little bit more in this I believe was was with Bictegravir, so if, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's Dalutegravir. okay, right. And so, uh, but I don't know that we can implicate too much, but this is, I think, what's interesting is that if it is a class effect from integrase inhibitors, this is a study in PrEP that used uh, integrase inhibitor cabotegravir and did not see the weight gain in the same way. So is it, Phil, to your point, is it something about a recovery from the immune activation and whatnot? And there are studies that show that um, the inflammation seems to affect the weight gain. So maybe it is a factor of just suppression, but why is it more with an integrase inhibitor than a PI or a non-nuke? And I don't know the answer. And Paul, to your point, I don't, I don't know that changing makes any difference. Um, I think we do have to double down on all the other lifestyle issues and uh, that type of thing. Raj? You know, I um, don't think we know the answer either, but I am getting more concerned about um, integrase inhibitors and the interaction with TAF. So Advance, the study that was just shown, really got people's attention because there seem to be real differences between dolutegravir and efavirenz in weight gain, especially in women. So what you're seeing on your um, on your right um, is women, and the red line is TAF with dolutegravir. The blue line is TDF with dolutegravir, and the green line is TDF with efavirenz. But that's a 10 kilogram change. Now, these are this was done in South Africa. It was 99% African and you know 60% women. The men on the other side, there was less of a difference, but that really looked real. And what was concerning is that the um, weight gain in this case continued to, at least in women, go up you know, even at 96 weeks, it didn't have that return to health look to it, which is, you know, as you said, everyone has some weight gain when they start ARVs because of return to health. Pa uh, Paul Sachs has a paper um, in CID from about a month ago, which is using the manufacturer data from a lot of these Bictegravir, Dolutegravir studies. And they're also integrase inhibitors. Um, those were randomized studies, just like this one is showed that um, there was more weight gain with integrase inhibitors than with NNRTIs, and Bictegravir and Dolutegravir in that study kind of tied. Bictegravir was not any better than Dolutegravir in, in the studies from the manufacturer of Bictegravir. 
So I think there is something there. I think that integrase inhibitors do have more weight gain than NNRTIs. I did think that dolutegravir and bictegravir are pretty much the same. Yeah. What I don't know is what to do about it. Yeah, I yeah. have no idea. So this <laughs> I don't, I, and I don't know whether switching helps, and I don't know whether that weight is necessarily bad. It might not be the bad visceral fat that we absolutely know has terrible metabolic consequences. Right. Maybe it's normal weight. Um, we don't know. So for all of us who've been around for a while, um, this is another deja vu moment, like just like we had with the, quote, fat redistribution syndrome. And I remember uh, um, folks standing up in meetings giving the uh, Buffalo Springfield for what it's worth lyric of something happening here, what it is ain't exactly clear. So I think we're back to the future. Um, Let's go on to a question about a discordant CD4 count. So this is a little different than the viral load one that we just asked. Um, this is a guy, it's basically I think the same guy, uh, except this time his viral load is suppressed, but his CD4 count um, isn't bumping much. Um, and uh, this is at about a year or so after he started therapy. So um, he's got an increase in CD4, but it's not what you normally would expect. And so the question is, should you change his therapy? His viral load has been undetectable really since the get-go. Once you got him there, it's, it's truly undetectable. And so is this a fault of the drugs or is this something else? So would you change the drugs? Yes, no, not sure. Let's vote. Most people would not. Um, folks on the panel nodding affirmatively. Uh, Michelle, any thoughts here? Sure, thank you. So I would be interested in uh, why the CD4 did not recover, and, and if the viral load is undetectable, then I wouldn't think it was because of an antiretroviral issue, particularly if you, you chose a first-line agent. And so I'd be more concerned about a co-infection with hepatitis B or hepatitis C, maybe substance use disorder, um, or some other uh, reason. Others? Yeah, I think in the setting, it's reasonable to look for, you know, other causes, corticosteroid use, other things that might, you know, independently affect the lymphocyte count, which, but, but all of us, I think, follow folks like this that have, yeah. some of them been on therapy for over 10 years and their CD4 count is still below 200 and so on. Right. I think there's several factors at play. One is people that present with advanced disease, low CD4 counts, have a, have a more blunted CD4 recovery, older people. Yep. have a more blunted CD4 recovery. But, it, but people tend to do very well yeah. despite low CD4 counts. Right. So this I reviewed yesterday, but for those of you who weren't here, um, the normal course of, infect of treatment is that the viral load, starting at baseline zero on this, goes undetectable within six months or so. And, and uh, or actually, that's six weeks. And the CD4 count bumps, and you, it continues on. There are these patients, though, who, like this guy, who doesn't get that six-week bump, and then after a while, um, slowly has an increase in CD4 count. But the, the thing I want to emphasize is that it appears that a lot of that bump is a redistribution of CD4 cells from lymphoid tissue, where the virus is. When you start treating, they get released because adhesion molecules are no longer elaborated like they were, and the cells get back. And this, I think, is simply a guy who didn't have the lymphoid architecture and ability to trap the cells, didn't get the release. The thing to notice on the more right-hand side of the CD4 count curves, 
that they tend to parallel after a year or two. And that's the recovery, natural recovery of CD4s. And if you do look back to rheumatology literature in the early to mid-90s, they were using anti-CD4 antibody for patients with RA. And they noticed that after one dose, it was okay. But after three doses, it knocked the CD4 counts down. And they did not come back except for maybe 10 years that they had to follow. So that's the normal recovery of a CD4. Um, but in this case, I think it's a lack of redistribution. And changing antiretroviral therapy is not going to change that biology in all likelihood. Um, I think we already kind of discussed this. Yeah, so let's move on. I'm going to skip this. And so now let's get to something else that was asked earlier. Um, what regimen should I use or not use in patients with end-stage kidney disease? 57-year-old um, guy is referred to you newly diagnosed, uh, presented for care at an FQHC. After years of not seeing a provider, he was diagnosed with a viral load of 147. A CD4 count of 370, serum creatinine was 5.6, creatinine clearance estimated less than 30, wild type virus B5701 negative. So advanced kidney disease as well as HIV moderately advanced. So which of these regimens are okay? And I'm going to show you in a second which ones are probably not okay. And pay particular attention to the fixed dose combination concept here. And go ahead and vote. All right, so the take-home point, I think, is that you've got to dose-adjust anything that's fixed-dosed with 3TC or FTC in this setting. So you really can't give your normal therapies. And um, in the interest of time, I'll just cut to the chase. And th most of these things are okay. You just have to renally adjust when, when you know to. And to make it also easier, I, I created this slide that you can take home. To me, this is a lookup. You don't treat renal failure all the time unless you're working with, like we're going to hear tomorrow from Jamie Locke, who's a transplant surgeon. And when you work with her, everybody's renally adjusted. Um, but, but I think the take-home point is that a lot of the drugs are OK in renal failure without dose adjustment. And the ones not to use are elvitegravir or bictegravir just now because of the fixed dose combination. You don't have an ability to break it away. Uh, Bictegravir by itself probably is just fine, but we don't have that option. Um, so that's the point of that uh, talk or that case. So what do I do when a patient comes back after a long absence? Anybody had that? <laughs> a patient, let me, I gotta move on. We'll get to Q&A in just a minute. Um, after a long absence, so here we go. This is a 55-year-old guy who's been absent for two years. Diagnosed seven years ago, initially was treated with a rolpivirine-based regimen. Um, did well. Viral load was mostly undetectable, CD4 count 325. He wants to re-engage with care, and he tells you that he just stopped taking his medicine. He didn't take it intermittently or anything like that. Um, so on this visit, you draw blood work. Are you going to wait for lab results, or are you going to just put them on the same treatment? 
put them on a different regimen, PI-based test, NC, wait for resistance test, what would you do? Go ahead and vote. Anybody who's raised an adolescent would love this song. Anybody got a map? Yeah, we don't know. It's like taking care of an HIV patient. Okay, anybody got a map? All right, so we got a smattering of responses. Panel, anybody got an approach to this? What do you do, Phil? I actually disagree this time with the majority. I would get a resistance test because NNRTI mutations are famous for not impairing viral fitness and hanging around for even years. I've seen a K103N eight years after someone was mm -hmm. off therapy. And so I would want to know if as he came off that rapiparine-based regimen and the, the long tail, he developed resistance. So I would, I would definitely um, want to know that. And if he tolerated that regimen well and is not resistant to it, he can go back on it. Okay, so you're going to go ahead and order a resistance test. Would you, on this day, waiting for that result, would you just restart them while you've got them in clinic, or would you wait for them to come back to restart? Mm. Because he yeah. was out of care for so long, I would feel uncomfortable putting him back okay. on a regimen that he was resistant to and could develop further got resistance. It. So I wouldn't yeah. want to. I will, see I will say that there is no map for this, yeah. right? It's, it's a judgment. Um, others? Yeah, I, I would be comfortable in starting either an INSTE or PI-based regimen, but I'd probably do an uh, integrase inhibitor-based regimen, and, and you know, uh, probably the resistance test may not affect results, but, yeah. but if it does, I think you could make changes. Okay. And I also think it's important to kind of document if NNRTI resistance is there. It may sure. be useful in the future. We may be using yeah. Duravarine mm -hmm. as an intervention for weight gain or something yep. like that in the future. We never know. So... Yep. To, to kind of know what they're resistant to is important. Right, Michelle? I completely agree with what he said. Uh, I think uh, we're talking about rapid start, but we have to think about rapid restart as well. And so he's been out of care for quite some time. This is essential. So I would order the test and start an uh, INSTE-based or a PI-based regimen. Yeah, so what I've been doing, and again, I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying I typically get every all the tests. I restart them on what he was on before and see what happens. Um, assuming he tolerated it. Um, to me, the fact that he's coming back, he's coming back because he's scared about something. He didn't just return because, you know, he found religion or something. There's probably something that drove him in. And he wants you to do something, in my opinion. The case managers drove him in. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, could you put him on something else? Sure, absolutely. Um, but the harm of putting him on Ropivirine, if... For, for three weeks or two weeks while you wait for a resistance test. Um, you could debate it. I, I don't think there's huge risk, even if he had uh, some Y181C or, or K103N or something. But it's judgment, and that's the point. And some of the points of these, of these questions in this talk are to say there aren't any absolute answers. And I think if you walk away from here with that sense, that's good, the mission accomplished. Let me, let me go to one last case, if I can, and then we'll have QA. Um, heavily treatment patient who's experiencing biologic failure. Um, we talked about this in, in Raj's talk. These are data that are in, uh, uh, have been submitted, but they were presented at the IAS meeting by Heidi Crane, who's here. Um, and the, the point is that 
This is from Scenix looking from 2000 onward to the number of people who have limited treatment options, that is less than two choices. And you look back and you see that it's about 8% in the peak of the problem in 2004. With the release of integrase inhibitors in 2007-8, suddenly it drops. It's, part, it's artificial in a sense, you want to call it that, because you have a new class that's very active. But look what it's done in terms of the proportion of people who are in the need for fostemzivir or other things. And, and I think there's face validity to this because we don't see this very much. So a lot of times I get questions after this talk and say, well, why didn't you have a difficult to treat, highly treatment experience, limited treatment option? And the answer is there aren't many. And, and so I just wanted to address that. The coolest part of this study, in my opinion, is the next slide, which shows among those who had limited treatment options in the last 10 years, how many of them were able to achieve undetectable vi virus? And the answer is no difference between those who didn't have limited treatment options. Pretty amazing, right? So we are doing well with the new drug, and, and I think these newer drugs even help that, if you're talking about ibolizumab and fostemzivir and some other things, but this is radically different than what we used to see in the 2002 to 2004 era before the integrase inhibitors came. So I'm going to wrap up. Um, I'm going to skip that. Um, so what we talked about was antiretroviral therapy should be initiated, mostly with a strand uh, transfer integrase inhibitor, and, uh, and, and try to avoid boosters unless you have a good reason to use it. Uh, don't change therapy in, in general in the state of low level of aremia, but as Dan said, check adherence and make sure that things are right. Um, do not change therapy for the most part with that low CD4 count response. It probably isn't the drugs. Uh, in renal failure, avoid fixed dose combinations as a rule when they inv involve FTC and 3TC. The weight gain issue is problematic. It, it's real, I think, but what do you do about it is unclear. And as a rule, at least my rule, is uh, to restart the last successful regimen with the caveats that we talked about. Are you wrong if you go to something more modern? No, it's fine. It's just, um, to me, that they're coming back looking for reassurance and comfort and welcoming and nurturing. And, and if, unless they had a problem with the old regimen, I'm okay restarting, but I can be talked out of that. Um, so let's go to a Q&A period. Um, invite you guys back who I shoot away, I'm sorry. Um, but well, I wanted to get through that last case. Please. Um, I have a question for the panel about the, the case you presented with the person with end-stage renal disease and dose-adjusting 3TC, which I've always done because it's what we've done for many years. But I've had some patients who have come to me on co-formulated abacavir, dolutegavir, 3TC with end-stage renal disease and have, been, and, have, and have done fine. And 3TC seems to be so well tolerated that does everybody still dose adjust the 3TC in that case? So the question really is what happens when 3TC levels get really high? Is that a problem? Well, I, th I think the, the right answer, you know, is to follow the guidelines, but I've done the same thing you have. You know, we don't really think of uh, too much of a toxicity associated with higher levels of FTC and 3TC. The other thing is that we're always using it with, we're often using it with the integrase inhibitors that we know interfere with the creatinine clearance uh, calculation. So I sometimes require maybe a, a little bit of a, a lower level of creatinine clearance before being forced to, uh, 
to, uh, to dose adjust. I think one of the, the TAF FTC studies actually went down to a creatinine clearance of 30. Yeah, um, So, you know, I, I do think you have some leeway there uh, to keep a patient on a, on a regimen. I'm not aware of toxicity in that setting. And, and they're going to the be dialyzed, so that could be um, giving you a roughly a creatinine clearance of whatever it is, 15 or 20 or so in dialysis. I forget the number. Yeah. Uh, this may have to do with uh, our dogma turning to manure for years, but uh, we used to, when patients came back, that they'd been off therapy for a long time, we used to reinitiate th the same therapy and then subsequently get the resistance assay with the thinking that if these people were infected with a wild-type virus, if you did the resistance assay at now, when they've come back, they probably have that virus again, and you'd miss the resistance that they may have. I think there's still some value to that, unless our resistance assays nowadays are so good that they will pick up all resistances, whether you have that pressure or not. No. So it's a great point. So in that case I showed, although uh, the point, I think Phil made the point that sometimes in an RTI, resistance mutation persists because it's kind of fit, if you will. Um, so. In, to carry out the scenario, let's say you got the resistance test at baseline. It might be wild type, like you said, and this guy had had a lot of exposure before, perhaps. Um, then whatever you restarted, you bring them back, and if they don't suppress, then it's time to get for sure a resistance test. Have we done harm? Maybe. Um, I, I don't know for sure, uh, but I would. Um, I, I think as long as our, our eyes are open and we're thinking about these things uh, rationally, uh, and follow, have close follow-up. I think it's really, really, that's the key. Other comments? Steve, you're smiling. Well, I'm just wondering, you know, this, this issue of, of DNA genotyping, which is very kind of problematic how to use it, but, you know, it's, it's, it's always possible in a setting like that that you could detect archived resistance and so on. It hasn't been studied as far as I'm aware, but... Okay, so a couple questions. We'll go quickly. We only have a few minutes and a stack this big that just got bigger. Um, so quickly about renal failure and dolutegravir real pivorine. Generally okay. No, I, I have a patient whose creatinine clearance has kind of dwindled into the mid-20s, um, and so I looked this up, and the, unfortunately what the package insert says is once you get below 30 for real pivoting, you know, there's, there's no data or we just don't know. Um, monitor carefully, basically. Yeah. What, what I did in that person is I did, ended up for other reasons switching him to dolgitegravir 3TC. Uh, this issue of what to do with the 3TC, I, I agree with, with Steve and others that there's a, enough reassurance that if, um, you know, someone whose creatinine clearance is right around 30, I'm okay with the re regular dose 3TC uh, because um, uh, there is data that it's well tolerated. Um, a question about uh, fixed dose combination, TAF-FTC, boosted elvitegravir in renal patients, not failure patients, generally not recommended as a rule? You know, there was a small study that Joe Aaron also led, done with the company, that said in people on dialysis, they did, um, okay. you know, that drug, TAF-FTC, elvitegravir-COBE, and it seemed fine. Um, when they're not on dialysis is when it's tricky, because then, I think, then I, I wouldn't do that. But once they're on dialysis, it seemed okay. Yep. This is asking a question about a study I hadn't seen um, that was in open form ID that said changing to TAF increased cardiovascular risk. Have you all heard that? 
OFID? Projected cardiovascular risk, risk based on lipids. Uh, lipids oh, just on the lipids, yeah, okay. Kind of oh, that makes risk, sense. So, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Lipids go up when you switch off of TDF because TDF lowers lipids. Um, this is going back to weight gain. Um, limited data on weight gain across drugs. Would you consider switching a concerned patient from dalutegravir, abacavir to a um, dalutegravir 3TC, and would that be better than you know, getting rid of the abacavir? Is that going to change things too much with the weight gain story? A lot of shrugs. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is an area where we need clinical trials, actually. We need to know that these interventions actually make a difference. Yeah. Is your sense that the weight gain is due to increased oral intake, just from increased well-being, as Phil mentioned that, or uh, is it in just more a better appetite, or do you think it's something more metabolic? It, it no might one knows. Be appetite. In that um, study that I mentioned before, that uh, Paul Sachs led. When they looked at the nucleosides, TAF had the most weight gain, and Bacvir and TDF were kind of in the middle, not that much. And the one that had no weight gain, AZT. Oh, <laughs> AZT there you no go. Gain, so. so we should go back to AZT. <laughs> yeah, it goes, it's another deja vu moment. That would be great fun. Well, um, well that's the question, actually. Is it, is it removal of agents that actually are, you know, yeah. promote some anorexia and, and weight that's loss, like question. TDF or efavirenz or things like that? Versus a return to health versus a direct metabolic effect. So this is something I didn't bring up, but uh, we'll finish with this one. Um, what if it's HIV-2? We don't see a whole lot of that. Um, certainly not in Alabama, Arkansas, maybe in, in New Mexico, but in New York and um, maybe Boston. Uh, see cases of HIV-2, if you, you all encountered that much. Yeah, Phil? We've had a couple of patients come through our practice from West Africa that have HIV-2, and we, um, you know, just avoid the non-nukes and yeah. treat them very effectively. The hard thing is um, getting the viral loads. That's right. Uh, it used to be University of Washington and New York Department of Public Health. So what do you two. do? I don't even well, know we've lost those two patients now, uh, so they moved away. So I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so in the last two years, I haven't had to order. So order you a viral outsource load. the patient rather yeah. than outsourcing the viral load. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, but you're right. The, the point is well made that the viral load assay might not work well for an HIV-2, so you've got to find a lab that can do that. CDC has provided that support in the past. Uh, I'm not aware of any commercial labs. UW is still doing it. I, I think Jeff Gottlieb. I was just right. Jeff Gottlieb, who's Mr. HIV-2. Okay. Uh, and UW still does it. It's Seattle. Seattle. Right. Okay, well, this has been a wildfire um, adventure, and I um, appreciate everybody's participation. Thanks for putting up with my contrarianness, and thanks to the panel for a great job in discussing the cases, and to you guys for some great questions. We'll wrap it up. Thank you. Thank you.